0: Stranded at the roadside is not where you want to be. That's why you pay extra for roadside assistance coverage. But what if you didn't have to pay extra for it? U.S. Eagle Perks Checking comes with roadside
1: assistance coverage, 24-7 when you need it. Learn more at gettheperks.org. Checking that gives you more because people mean more at U.S. Eagle. Terms and conditions apply See U.S. Eagle for details federally insured by NCUA. I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. I'd like to welcome Arturo Olivas to Healthcare Untold. Welcome to Healthcare Untold, Arturo.
0: Hi, Barbara. And thank you for this opportunity to be on your platform.
1: All right, great. Well, you know, Arturo, I've known you for many years, and we uh, met during the AIDS epidemic. But uh, you were a and have been a uh, really important Latino gay leader. Um, and I just wanted to, um, you know, have the listening audience learn about your background and how you got started in becoming an activist.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I was born and raised in Fresno, and of course my parents were farm workers. And I've always been the advocate in the in the family. And I remember early on being in Teatro Campesino, which is guerrilla theater um, for the masses and it was through organized farm workers. And that was the beginning of my, what I would call activism, is supporting my mentor and leader at that point was Cesar Chavez. So even as in Fresno, I mean, we would, they would call off the first day of school, the first week of school, because it was the harvest season for the grapes, so. We wouldn't go to school because we had to go pick grapes. But the union never really came to Fresno, per se. Uh, And we were never union organized, although I supported the union, even though they were busy in Delano. Um, And in my family, I was the advocate, viewed as the advocate. So that took me on to Fresno State in the Mecha Movement, the Movimiento Estudiantil de Chicano de Aslan. and I remember getting involved with that and right away one of the first things that came up was something that I was involved in or went to when I was a senior in high school and that was the Chicano Youth Conference at Fresno State and under Mecha we organized it. So I was the organizer of the Chicano Youth Conference at Fresno State in the third year that it was implemented. And what we do at the Chicano Youth Conference is we bring all you know, the Chicano students from high schools throughout the San Joaquin Valley to the college campus. And we have workshops on how to get into college, how to prepare for financial aid, how to you know do a bunch of different things to motivate people to get to college. And I have to say that I was inspired to do that because at that time I went to college and I got financial aid because of a farm worker program that was out to recruit Latino students into college that were primarily from farm worker backgrounds. And I benefited from it. And I wanted to make sure that other students in San Joaquin Valley also were able to get into college. That being said, I'm now at Fresno State. And I was involved with, we have college unions on campuses where there's activities. They could be as simple as um, coffee house entertainment or setting up movies for the students on campus or a speaker series. And I was on the college union board. It's uh, an association and it's national. They They have this whole national organization of college union boards and they would have regional conferences. And while I was there at Fresno State, I went to a regional conference at UCLA for the college union activity boards. And that's when I fell in love with the campus at UCLA. And I said, I'm transferring to UCLA. What am I doing wasting my <laughs> wasting my scholarships and my and my grants here at Fresno State when I could be at UCLA? and their campus had a great student union and i was able to transfer to ucla and be involved with the college union board where i scheduled speakers concerts house entertainment different activities for the students at fresno or ucla i loved being active in student activities. I think I liked it better than the classroom. Um, I learned a lot through that activism. And while at UCLA, I was involved with the Metro there. I came out of the closet at UCLA. At least in my eyes, I was out of the closet, but I was always in the closet back home in Fresno. Um, So as a gay Latino in Los Angeles, there was already activities and organizations that were there. At the Gay and Lesbian Community Services Center, um, there was a whole building. They provided services. They had legal services. They had counseling services. They had youth services. They had health care services. They had an, an array of things. But getting involved with the gay and lesbian community was always a chore. I was never really invited to participate. It always seemed like you were a second thought in terms of being invited to this activities and i quickly realized why isn't there a latino gay and lesbian organization and we started one (laughs) called gay and lesbian latinos unidos and it was primarily through gay Latinos from UCLA that got together and other gay Latinos that met at the Gay and Lesbian Center that we started. The Gay and Lesbian Latinos Unidos in LA. And through that. We continued more activity in in LA, creating fundraisers for to support the gay Latino community. I became known as an activist, a gay Latino activist. And after I graduated from college, I started working at UCLA. And while I was an employee there, I always noticed that there was a lot of Latinos on campus that worked there. I said, why aren't we organizing the Latino Faculty and Staff Association and I organized the first Latino Faculty and Staff Association at UCLA while I was a staff member. So we had gardeners, we had professors, we had counselors we had admission people, wherever you were, if you were Latino and you were a staff member at UCLA, we all had meetings, we came together and we greeted each other and it was, it was a great social organization. But again, again, that became politicized by, we then were the group, that needed to be met with whenever there was going to be a new chancellor that was going to be interviewed. So each time we organized an organization, it always then developed a foundation that had different platforms where you could advocate for Latino inclusivity. And after I left UCLA, I then became a staff member. I was recruited uh, to be the second in command at the Gay and Lesbian Community Services Center in 1981. So I became the director of administration at the Gay and Lesbian Community Services Center in Los Angeles in 1981. Maybe, no. I graduated from college in 1981, so it wasn't until 1986, and I remember my first day on the job was, here's the union contract, you're representing management tomorrow.
1: Okay, that's, that sounds like being on the other <laughs> side.
0: <laughs> so now I'm on the other side representing management with the union. And it was at the first ever unionized gay and lesbian organization. It's, it was interesting because the woman that I negotiated the, the, the conference or the contract with, years later i ended up working with at the union so rose hodges Um, that was the beginning of my activism in la but through that came lots of well platforms to be visibly active visible on television um this was the beginning of the whole hiv aids era and being the only quote latino in administration at the gay and lesbian center you then became the spokesperson for the spanish speaking media and i have to say that's when my real outing process started
1: you mean your family seeing you on tv
0: Yes, my aunt, who lives in Los Angeles, told my parents they saw um, me on television, but they didn't understand why I was an administrator at the Gay and Lesbian Community (laughs) Services Center. Right. And (laughs) (laughs) that, again, was the open door to go and tell my family. Yes, I am openly gay and lesbian. Um, So, but that opportunity didn't happen right away.
1: Well, you know that's an interesting point, um, Arturo, because it seems that in your career, you've had to, you know, really live in multiple worlds um, in terms of uh, your career and your um, your family. Um, in terms of being uh, part of the farm worker movement um, and then moving on to becoming part of um, the gay lesbian uh, community. And, you know, back then we only had uh, gay lesbian. We didn't have transgender and uh, all the QIA um, kind of um, abbreviations to that. And I can remember even trying to bring in the bisexual connotation was also a challenge for some of the, uh, you know, the individuals who had, I think, fought for the rights of gay lesbians, right? Um, And so you've kind of had to move into all those worlds. And I know it came with sometimes conflict um, and you were so brave, um, at least when I met you um, in really voicing the needs of gay men during the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, And, uh, you know, I just want to acknowledge that because, you know, you've you've had to work in in many worlds and try to figure out how to continue to move the movement and continue to represent uh, the community and to make things better. Um, But we got into this incredible time period, which I know, you know, you and I have spoken many times about, the HIV pandemic um, and how that impacted all of us. And then this pandemic that we're um, faced with today. Um, So tell us a little bit about um, the beginning of that HIV AIDS epidemic and how that really shifted all of our work um, in terms of now seeing so many of our friends and family members and loved ones, die so quickly from this disease.
0: Yes, that was, it was devastating to go through um, the whole HIV, AIDS crisis. And we really didn't know what we were getting into. Um, It was always, it's not really happening to us. Maybe it's the fringe of our community that's getting AIDS or HIV AIDS. And. I couldn't. um, What happened with the the getting into HIV AIDS? I mean, we were providing services at the Gay and Lesbian Center. We did all the educational outreach for HIV AIDS. Yes, I was a spokesperson before for the Gay and Lesbian Center for the Spanish-speaking media. And by this time, when State Senator at that time, Art Torres, was asked by Congressman Roybal if he knew of any gay Latinos that could go to Washington, D.C. because he was putting together a committee, Our Arturis gave him my name and says, you have to send this guy. And so when I got a call from Roy Ball's office, Congressman Roy Ball at that time, um, saying that the Center for Disease Control was putting together a, a committee of minorities to address AIDS and HIV in minority communities. And of course, I'm the director of administration at the Gay and Lesbian Center. There's already AIDS Project Los Angeles. Why don't you contact them? No, no, we got your name. We want you to come. And I was very hesitant, but they said they would be sending me information. It was around the holiday season, let's say Halloweenish of that year, to 1985, and I got a packet in the mail, and I was just ready to go off to vacation in Arizona. Took the packet with me, read it, and no. I mean, lo and behold, at the same vacation, my own partner is diagnosed with pneumonia in Arizona. We had just gotten together. I mean, I knew what pneumonia back then meant in Arizona. And we drove back to California where he went to visit his, quote, gay doctor, and the doctor admitted him to Huntington Memorial Hospital in Pasadena, where he was then diagnosed with HIV AIDS, Kaposi's sarcoma, and pneumonia. So that's full-blown AIDS. And just like this pandemic, where everybody's scared of COVID and everybody's needing to dress up in PPE, which now we know is protective or uh, personal protective equipment. We had to gown up just like that during the whole HIV AIDS crisis, whenever we went to the hospital to visit a patient with AIDS. and gowns, masks, everything. So it was not as stringent as COVID because we could still visit the people in the hospital. But even if you were um, the spouse, you could not go in. And at this point, you couldn't be spouses. For same-sex marriages,
1: that's right. That's right.
0: You know, there was there was no legal boundaries there. You you were his friend, and that was it. It became so obvious that the quality of care at this hospital for my lover at that point was going was so inferior. I mean, they wouldn't take his meals into him. They'd leave him outside. I mean, it was awful that his own gay doctor, we couldn't admit the fact that this doctor was gay because he was in the closet to the staff. I knew that there were better places for him to be, and I just had to get him out of the, the hospital where he was at and I took him out against medical advice or doctor's advice. And we left Pasadena and I took him straight to Sherman Oaks Community Hospital where I knew there was a dedicated floor for people with HIV AIDS. And it was night and day, the way they treated the people. I didn't have to get all pee pee out. I didn't have to wear a mask or gloves. It's like, it was a normal situation. And you felt happier that your loved one was going to be cared for there. Yeah, I could even stay overnight with him, which was a big difference.
1: This episode is supported by Southwest Labs, located in Las Cruces in Albuquerque. And, you know, Southwest Labs is making um, medical lab testing simple and without the hassle of trying to make an appointment with your doctor. You just have to call them or go online or seek them out on social media. And they have a variety of tests, um, lab tests that include allergy testing, STD testing, prostate screening, COVID-19 testing, uh, monitoring your diabetes. And you just have to choose your test, you get tested, and your results uh, will be coming to you um, through a doctor's interpretation virtually. You can contact Southwest Labs at 505-609-LABS, 505-609-LABS, or you can visit them at southwestlab.com, or you can find them on social media. Um, to schedule a test today and mention this ad when you schedule your appointment. And, you know, um, you can see that development even in our today of the pandemic. Of course, you know, we, we figured out HIV and AIDS was sexually transmitted uh, or through injection drug use. Um, and then we had this pandemic that's in the air or, you know, for in close contact and the development of our doctors and nurses to begin, um, getting educated and not being as fearful, um, and being more um, supportive of the communities that were dying in their hands. Right. Um, you were a witness to that, um, in that whole process. Um, and so I, I just want you to continue your story, but I just wanted to acknowledge, um, the fact that there were these pockets of, of light for gay men particularly um, as they were struggling with trying to figure out uh, what they were getting sick of.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, we had to deal with the whole labeling of the gay-related immunodeficiency grid was it was called before it was called HIV AIDS. And. At that time, when I mean, I was just informed by the CDC. They sent me this package of information that 28% of the cases were people of color. Latinos, Blacks, Asians. And They were not being represented in any educational campaigns, any uh, testing, counseling, you name it, there was nothing being targeted for minorities. And so this committee of 16 people that got together across the country um, to look at this issue Began this process of meeting every month. Perhaps every other month, but we've met pretty consistently. And my awareness grew. And then I'm going home and having to deal with my spouse who's also diagnosed. And it's like you're the first in the Latino, gay, Latino community. To have a lover diagnosed, nobody, we didn't know anybody else. So we also became what? Piranhas in our own community. Nobody wanted to, we're no longer socially active. We weren't invited to those parties because we had HIV AIDS. So, the isolation that comes with that, the the stigma, the trauma, um, all of that came to the forefront. And as I became more knowledgeable of HIV AIDS, my voice had to become louder because of the cultural elements within the Latino community. The layer of religious. I mean, when we're talking at that time, the only prevention method being condom use. And at that time, the only way Latinos, Blacks and Asians were getting HIV AIDS was through quote, IV drug use. Yet. The numbers that were coming from the Center for Disease Control did not support that. They were men having sex with other men. But in our communities, they could only stomach the fact that if there were AIDS cases, they had to be through IV drug use, not through sexually transmitted disease. So. I had to become more of an advocate for men who have sex with other men Um, and also the voice of truth because our community leaders welcomed HIV AIDS as long as it pertain to IV drug use, but sexual transmission, Um, men who have sex with other men, that doesn't exist in our community. So within the own Latino community, I had to butt heads with this denial that we existed. Not just in Los Angeles, but nationally. And it was such an overwhelming task because you are perceived as an angry homosexual that wants to throw your lifestyle in other people's faces. And it was not a welcoming environment. So it was a very hostile environment. And then I'm dealing with it personally. Because I have a spouse that is diagnosed with it. He has children who have to live with it. His kids were kicked out of elementary school when they found out their dad had HIV AIDS and were told they had to take an HIV test before they could come back to school. He was also an ex-brother in the Catholic Church. So I had all of these other arenas that were snapping at my feet saying, let's talk to you about this issue. Let's talk to you about this issue. And what do you mean men who have sex with other men? And just shattering the disbelief or the beliefs within the Latino community that we didn't exist. And shortly thereafter, I was invited to speak in Austin, Texas at the first national or the first statewide gay Latino conference. and. That's when we said we have to build communities for gay and lesbian Latinos across the country where we can build a stronger voice because we're not being heard within our larger gay and lesbian community.
1: Nor the Latino community as well. Nor
0: the Latino community. Mm -hmm.
1: So those were like incredible um, steps you took, Arturo, and um, it's about this time that I met you um, and, you know, it was just uh, we became fast friends um, and it was so incredible during that time because we were facing all of these um, obstacles in every community. Right. And so, um, and you know, as uh, coming out in the Latino community, um, you know, I, I, I kind of came out in more of a rural uh, urban and rural communities and, um, you know, the separation of, of the lesbian community and the gay community, depending on if you were in the rural area, there weren't enough of us to separate. Um, but if you were in urban centers, you know, people really did separate. And um, so, you know, it was a, a, such an incredible time because when we all came together under uh, the rubric of gay, lesbian, Latino, gay, lesbian communities, um, and even the B word of bisexuality wasn't even there yet, um, it was really, um, really trying to figure out where we were. And all we had to do was look at the largest Latino communities in the country, and there we were, right? Um, mostly social groups, right? When we started doing that work um, and quickly we had to engage in that whole integration of HIV and AIDS into those organizations. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to interview you because, you know, I don't want this history to be lost of the kind of work that you had to do and, you know, the discrimination and the pain that you went through Uh, to try to improve conditions for individuals to seek care and to live, as you always say, wonderful, whole, and complete lives. And so um, I know that um, this story has a much longer tale to it, but uh, continue, Arturo, and, and tell us a little bit more about how you managed to I think deal with, you know, the loss of lives and, cause I think it's so important, you know, so many Latinos have died in this uh, pandemic and it's such a silent grief. And I guess the one thing we learned through the HIV and AIDS epidemic was how to grieve. Um, and because we were kind of invisible and, you know, people like yourself, really helped others to, you know, begin to um, heal themselves uh, from the great loss, but also to be proud of who they were. Give us more.
0: Yeah, I, I do have to give lots of credit to the larger gay and lesbian community in terms of how they addressed the whole HIV AIDS crisis and coping mechanisms, because without that, I wouldn't have learned meditation. I wouldn't have learned um, different alternative technologies, or let's say alternative treatments um, for coping. Because personally, I, have never really seen a therapist to talk about issues. Um, I knew I had a spouse from the day of diagnosis to the day of death was nine months with HIV AIDS. So (laughs) that's how quick people were dying when they were diagnosed with AIDS and they were a minority. And it's no different now with COVID. Minorities are overrepresented in terms of COVID cases. Why? It's been a historical, historical health outcome for us to be overrepresented in any of these preventable diseases and there's no education. What else do I want to say about this? Besides the support in the gay and lesbian community through their mechanisms, I have to also say that within the Latino community, uh, in the organizing that I was able to um, spearhead and Get lots of support from. The other organization that was very instrumental at that time was the National Latino, I'm sorry, National, what's it called? NCLR, National Council de la Raza. Mm-hmm. And they're now called United. Unidos, Unidos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, But the National Council de la Raza was very instrumental in assisting us in developing a national Latino, lesbian, and gay organization called LLEGO, an organization that was short-lived but served its purpose in terms of developing a voice for gay and lesbian Latinos and HIV AIDS. And it was based in Washington, DC. And that was an offshoot of the National Minority AIDS Council. So yeah, there was a lot of development that took place during my years. There was a lot to learn in terms of organizing on a national level because Latinos aren't homogenous. We are made up of Mexicanos, Puerto Ricanos, Cubanos, um, Sudamericanos. I mean, just to organize in those different communities requires different skill
1: sets. That's right. And, you know, as someone who has fought um, for justice for um, your lifetime, and then also you know, being able to represent multiple communities. Um, you know, we have a whole group of young people today who are doing their work. Um, and, and then we have a whole community that has been silenced by COVID. Um, and I just wonder, you know, to give us some of your advice Arturo from your life of activism, uh, for the next generation to think about what they need to kind of keep in mind as they're doing their protests, as they're doing their organizing um, and even creating organizations to represent um you know our our communities and you know we've uh, we have we are what you know the the browning of America is happening and yes. and yet we don't see the development of these mutual benefit organizations like we did in our time. Um, And I just wonder if you could share with the listening audience some thoughts of the future and also some advice um, of how to continue. Um, And you've done such a beautiful job of um, healing yourself and, and through your community and, you know, through your loved ones. And, you know, you have a wonderful family that supports you. Um, and, you know, that took a lot of work and a lot of bravery. Um, so share, share with the listening audience some of your thoughts and um, <laughs> advice.
0: Some of my thoughts. Uh, it, was, it was very, very eye-opening. When, I mean, during 2008, we all knew the economy took a nosedive. Everybody had to recreate themselves. Well, I went into doing taxes and took a job at H&R Block. And as a manager of an office there, this young Latina receptionist comes up to me. She says, Arturo, do you know a person by the name of, and I'll say Dennis Medina. Yes, why do you ask? And she says, from Texas? I said, yes, why do you ask? She says, so you are the Arturo Olivas that I'm reading about. I said, what do you mean? She had an assignment through her Chicano studies at Cal State L.A. And she's reading this book about queer brown lives. And I guess there's I'm in this book and she's telling me, wow, you, 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 you made history. And I didn't stop to think. At that point that I had been made history or been a part of history <laughs> because it was what we had to deal with to live to be ourselves it wasn't a rallying cry it was it was for our existence and she was so flabbergasted that, you know, how could I have done all this stuff and not been so proud of what I've done? It's not like I wasn't proud. There was no platform for it to espouse itself. And I guess I found out that day that I was in a book.
1: <laughs> you were made history. It's
0: called <laughs> Queer Brown Lives. And now it's being taught at Chicano Study classes, at least in LA it was. And I support those scholars that are trying to teach our youth that there is another way of organizing. It's social media has put such a it's, it's crippled us in terms of being able to verbalize and mobilize, mobilize our community in a personal way.
1: Except Arturo. We at Healthcare Untold recognize you as one of our heroes and also a history maker uh, for gay Latino men. And, um, you know, I just really want to acknowledge you on behalf of Healthcare Untold. You know, these are untold stories of incredible people in our communities who make differences. And, you know, they didn't do it to be in a book. They didn't do it to be on TV. in fact, uh, for you, getting on TV got you into all kinds of trouble. (laughs) Um, And so I just want to. Thank you and tell you how much I love you and, uh, you know, how proud I am.
0: Well, thank you, Barbara. I'm right back at you. So proud of you continuing to do this, even um, in our retirement years. Healthcare Untold is a proud member of the Varelas Podcast Guild.